Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an EPG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we will be talking about storytelling. The best strategists are natural storytellers. It's an important skill that we need to constantly hone. Today, we're talking to Ryan Lynch, partner and CSO at Beardwood & Co., a consultancy based in New York City and now with a satellite office in the Catskills. Ryan moved from the bustling noise of New York City to the mountains of the Catskills during the pandemic. And so today's talk is entitled City Mouse to Country Mouse, How to Rock Strategy from the Catskills. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Cossette for sponsoring this week's episodes. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they have shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. Michelle, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. And thanks to your listeners. Um, I am, I'm a big fan of Grow Up. So thank you very much. And who am I, right? My name is Ryan Lynch. You said what my title is. I'm a strategist, folks, like you, um, probably most likely. And uh, with a, a lot of self-doubt and a lot of striving and a lot of trying to make it happen, um, and I think I love the rocking strategy from the, from the cat skills. And I, and I think it was a bit of a survival, you know, what, what I've done is a bit of a survival technique because how do you figure out how to do it here? And everything I've learned is trying to make it up as I go along, as I think most strategists do. So about me, I work with big brands. I work with small brands. I work with, uh, entrepreneurs and startups and, uh, fortune 500 companies and CEOs and do a lot of that sort of whispering to get things done and make things happen. Um, and love it. And, um, currently, am currently for the past 14 years have been looking after Beardwood and co and trying to help those people be the brilliant stars that they are and help them grow into the brilliant people that they have become. So it's a it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to do that. Yeah. And and I mean, maybe we start kind of um, pandemic ish time. Like, mm. how did you end up where you are? <laughs> Tell us that, how, how did that happen? Good question. So living in New York City, commuting to work every day into Soho from Brooklyn um, and about 20, rewind 20 years before that, um, my partner and I, my husband and I had been looking at places up in the Catskills. We had friends who lived up in the Catskills and we always dreamed, oh, maybe we would have a country house out in the Catskills. Um, and at the time we didn't have the money and the notion was maybe we would be able to invest elsewhere because New York City was too expensive. Um, so we knew this area, we had friends up here and then fast forward 20 plus 20 years later, we made an investment and bought a house up here and we were renting it on Airbnb. And then March 2020 hits and we looked at each other basically the day that my business partners and I <laughs> said to the team, please pack up your laptops and everything because it may be a while. Um, my partner and I looked at each other and said, where would you like to be for the duration of this? And we said, well, we'd like to be where there's more space. Um, and where there's access to outdoors. And so we packed up our Brooklyn apartment and came up to the Catskills basically March 14th um, and have been here full time ever since. Um, and so it was a, a bit of a spur of the moment, but equally it was a bit of a acceleration as I think COVID was in all things, because had you asked us before COVID what we wanted to do, we would say, mm, we'd love to spend 
maybe four or five days in the Catskills and two days in New York City versus what was five days in New York City and two days in the Catskills. So like all things in the past few few years, plans were hyper accelerated. And here we are, I am full time in the Catskills. And so did you ever have any like, holy shit, you know, what am I doing? Am I sure I want to do this? moments and what were some of those thoughts that ran through your head? And and the reason I ask is, so just to give a bit of background. So Ryan and I used to work at an agency or an innovation agency called What If? <laughs> and they there were, and I still believe, some of the the brightest and most um kind of linked into culture <laughs> um that people that I had ever met always knew the latest trends and what was happening and had their ear to the ground, went to all the cool th- places in New York and knew all the cool people. And so here you were leaving all of that, um, moving to the kind of the middle of nowhere. I've not actually been to the Catskills. It sounds beautiful, but I imagine much less stimulating than than being um, in, in New York or even Brooklyn. So what were kind of some of the maybe hesitations that ran through your head? No, I love your, first of all, shout out to what if agree with you 100% smartest, brightest, most brilliant people I've ever met who also taught me about stimulus um, and the value of stimulus. And so you asked what was the oh shit moment. And I think it was that moment where, gosh, it was great. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, um, I'm not commuting every day. I'm not on the subway every day. I'm not flooded with the stimulus of New York City. I always talk about New York City as really just a fire hose of stimulus. And as someone who's an innate observer and can't help but see things, it's almost overwhelming. (laughs) And I think Mm -hmm. most strategists understand that you just see too much um, and yet, right, that stimulus was what what I thought fed my strategy and definitely did feed my strategy and fed my thinking and my work. And so as I'm sitting here in the silence with none of that stimulus, it became really deafening. And it, and it really was within the first week for me that it was very apparent. I thought, wow, there's a silence here. And that's a good thing. But equally, it was a ringing and I felt like I was missing something. It was almost like I was missing my hearing, you know? And so I immediately built a, well, not immediately, I immediately set out to build a feed that matched the stimulus of New York City. And I would say optimized, built upon, filtered, curated, 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 curated something that worked for me and gave me probably, I think, a better set of stimulus than just relying on New York City. Um, New York City could be a crutch, any megalopolis. You just assume that you're seeing the trends, you're watching it all happen. Um, you're seeing the wild postings, which are telling you what the new brands are. It, it, it all just washes over you versus having to intentionally dedicate time and learning for stimulus and immersion and making it a a daily practice. Um, Mm -hmm. So that deafening silence really made me say, "Uh, we got to fix this because as much as I love the silence of the forest, um, I need the stimulus to be able to do the work and have the thoughts. Yeah. And I'm really curious, you know, how you've managed to you know, perfect or continue to hone in on that balance, because I imagine, you know, you talk about intentionally, and it sounds like kind of curating the right sources of inspiration. But, but I mean, sometimes I find it's not about, you know, obviously, we're talking about quality here, but 
volume as well, because sometimes you don't actually really need that much, I find, to have great ideas. It's more maybe sometimes the quiet or the silence that you need. How have you managed to uh, hone that balance? Mm, that's a good one. The balance between the stimulus and the silence, right? Yeah. Um, yes. The you you need the input to then mull the input. Um, mm. We used to we talked at at what if about mulling time, and I'm always talking to the team about making sure that we're building into budgets that idea of the figuring it out time, right? The wrestling it because as we know as strategists, there's there is the need to wrestle it to the ground and it doesn't, it all isn't always the light bulb moment. Sometimes you got to roll around in it for a while and go down four wrong paths before you find the right one. Um, mm -hmm. So great question. How do you balance the silence versus the stimulus? Because I think in New York city, I would, I would intentionally seek out those silent moments, right? I was, I was always running out of the office to go for a walk um, because quite frankly, the streets of New York City gave me more silence in my head than the office that I was existing in to be able to get my head around things. I, you know, now living in a little, what is it, what used to be the laundry room in this house, a five foot by five foot room, I have complete silence. I can close the door. And so I don't have to escape to be able to have that balance. So now on the other end, I'm having to force the, force the stimulus in to make sure it's there. So I, you hit something really interesting, which is that balance. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think now I've had to over-index on the stimulus because I have the silence. Whereas living in a megalopolis, you don't have the silence. You have to seek those moments. You have to walk through the slivers of a park, right? To be able to find that moment of peace, um, to be able to find the connections and be mm -hmm. able to pull back and, and see the perspective to find the answers. So I'm I'm curious now what your your day to day is like versus what it was before. I mean, imagine so you have a two room commute now, <laughs> or yeah. um, you know you sit you sit down and start getting inspiration from some emails, uh, you know that you're subscribed to, or or do you go out for a, a walk in the morning and get your inspiration from nature? Like, talk me through where that all kind of comes from and what what your day might look like. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, because I think in contrast, my days were so varied um, when I was in the city. And a lot of that, I've been thinking about this a lot, a lot of that had to do with geolocation, right? And being in a place um, and having to be at a place at a particular time and then at another place versus I now can be anywhere at all times whenever I need to be, which is magical. So therefore, yeah, I'm up with the sun and I'm out um, generally for a walk most mornings. Um, and then I'm able to exercise and do that and also do exercise before I start my day, have my breakfast. I've, I've then read the news, done all of those sorts of things. Before I come into my little blue room, um, turn on the lights and sort of sit down and do probably 45 minutes to an hour of stimulus before I even get into emails and stuff. Well, that is, you know, my stimulus a lot of times comes from Substack via email to my, to my inbox. So therefore I don't have to go anywhere. That's how I curate that feed. Um, and, and spend that time doing that before I dig into emails with team or client or pings or anything else that has to be sorted out. Um, and then forever 
sharing that as I can, which is the other thing, both with my clients as well as with the team as I go through it. In between then basically being on camera in client meetings or team meetings all day long, um, I've, I've been talking about the fact that it's a very it's a very condensed, compressed, and intense uh, working day these days because it, you know, I start whenever I start and end whenever I end, but I generally don't get up. Um, and I'm, I'm here doing this because I can actually click from connection to connection to connection and have meaningful connections with people and, and, and really build ideas and or build relationships in a very streamlined way that I think that was impossible before. How do you find your productivity? Um, you know, there's been tons written about actually how more productive um, people are when they're they're working remotely. Um, I mean, I imagine you have much fewer interruptions. You find that you're able to kind of continue in that um, in in the in the constant stream as opposed to being interrupted um, more. Michelle, you hit you hit the nail on the head for me. <laughs> um, within even the first month or two, I was talking to my business partners, and you know they were they were struggling in varying degrees with being remote. And I was saying, "Oh, this is amazing because I have to be scheduled." Meaning, if someone wants to talk to me, they can either you know send me a ping, what have you, but they can't interrupt me. They can't come over and tap me on the shoulder. And I used to. Yeah. When I was working, you know, when I was deep on a deliverable, I would wall myself into a corner covered in stickies and people knew not to go and interrupt Ryan when he was yeah. covered in stickies. <laughs> um, and th there was a physical signal, right? You know, avoid this human. Um, <laughs> and and I think the good news now is because because I'm, I have that, that control, um, it allows me to be way more productive. I have found my my productivity to be amply increased. I also, as the biggest fan of an open office, um, was the human who always had headphones on um, to be able to block out the rest of the noise. So therefore, I think my my productivity is increased as well because my brain, I <laughs> ducks have two sides of their brains and they can turn one off and sleep and focus on something else. Well, I could sort of take half of my brain and listen to the ambient conversation that was happening in the open office and then use the other mm -hmm. half to focus. And it didn't work very well, obviously. So therefore, way more productive without all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've been kind of going back and forth a little bit and uh, talking about how, you know, what we might cover on this interview. And I love this line. I was just scrolling through the notes where you had said that yoga and meditation don't compare to the calming effects of birdsong and running stream, which makes me super envious of you. But I, I just could you talk a bit more about that? How, how did you find that to be the case? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I've I've always known this. I grew up in Colorado, the um, son of an amateur botanist and naturalist, my mother. Um, and so I, I, I have always been drawn to nature and always taken to nature and had solace in nature. And I am also a practitioner of, you know, yoga, Pilates, meditation, all of those kind of good things and do those things. And yet also know that if I go and spend five minutes staring at a stream, I can affect my brain in a way that I think meditation aspires to, yoga aspires to. You know, if I take a walk through the forest, 
um, I get the benefits of physical activity and it rewires my brain in lots of ways, not just from visual stimulus, which we know there are all the studies of if you've got a problem solving a problem, go walk through green, right? Um, but equally the <laughs> but equally the stuff in the forest, um, there's lots of there are lots of scientific studies that that talk about the things that exist in in the forest, the the micro things that we're absorbing by breathing are also, you know, beneficial for us, our brains and our bodies. So mm -hmm. it sounds, it can sound woo woo. And yet I am an incredibly <laughs> scientific rationalist. Um, and I fundamentally believe that it is good for the brain, the body and the soul. Again, I used to walk through little slivers of park in New York City to be able to have that moment of green because I knew the value of, of what it did to my brain. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I and I'm curious, uh, you know, for my own, uh, you know, reasons, as well as some of our listeners who, you know, maybe we're not quite as fortunate, we'd love to be moving to the Catskills or somewhere similar like that, but we are still kind of here in the city. What can we take from your experience? What can you coach us in terms of how we can apply some of that serenity or find some of that serenity um, and apply it here? I, I love that. I think it's, uh, I think think there are um, a bunch of things one can take and and sort of bring the Catskills to wherever you are or bring the forest to wherever you are. Um, there is a great substack, the art of noticing. That's what it's called. The mm. Tao of noticing maybe or the art of noticing, um, I believe is the substack. And it, it's this idea that you can find nature anywhere and nature is truly the ultimate sort of stimulus and problem solver. Um, so it's easy to find the dandelion in the crack of the of the pavement. It's easy to look at a leaf and see the the vein structure and understand how it's transporting nutrients and how does that then link to patterns in society and how things how ideas are transported through nodes and veins. So I think it's it, it takes our mindset of being able to know that that nature is an asset both to problem solving as well as to serenity. I think everyone usually has access to a tree or a park. Um, and I think one of the things I've learned, I'm, uh, there's a, a philosophy called forest bathing. And the idea yeah. is to be in the forest, to mindfully walk in the forest, to mindfully be in the forest, to notice the forest. And I think you can take that idea and apply it to anything. It doesn't have to be a forest. One of the things they talk about with forest bathing is if you then have your mindful walk and then sit actually just quietly for five minutes and, and observe. And I think that idea can be applied to, hey, there is one scraggly tree growing out of this, you know, growing out of the, the pavement here. Sit for five minutes. Watch the tree. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. sit. Just watch. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be the forest. I think you can do the same thing with people. You can do the same thing with an intersection. You can do the same thing with, with anything, really. But it is mm -hmm. that notion of the focus, um, the <clears throat> almost listening through your pores as it were to, to absorb everything that, that you can from, from whatever you're, you're looking at. 
And so I'm curious, what happens now when you go back to New York City? Are are your senses even more heightened? Are you like completely overwhelmed or how, no, how does it work now it, in the reverse? It's great. It's great. It's, <laughs> that's a really good question. I'm definitely not overwhelmed. It's funny. I, I definitely still feel completely at home. It's my city. When I walk down the street, I definitely feel that way. I don't feel uh, like an interloper and I definitely don't feel overwhelmed. Um, it reminds me um, that that my curation of my feed is so important and that my curation of stimulus is so important and that I'm getting all of the different ideas that I need because, again, I, I, you go to the city and, of course, you see all of those things around you. Um, it also reminds me that that it is one view. That's the other good thing that living outside of New York City is, you know, it is um, a, uh, a an ethnocentric place, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's New York City or nowhere. And I think that that is very much true. Absolutely. There is truth in that statement. Um, and I think it can be blinding um, and it can mm-hmm. be very limiting. And as strategists, we need to be able to Get in. T- I think we need to be able to get in touch with all people from all walks of life and all places, um, not just cool urban folk who we might like aspire to or know. And so mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it it really it really shines a spotlight on that, which is the necessity of again. I call it my feed, and I say that very metaphorically. Um, because it's the same thing with people. How can I get other stimulus, personalities, ideas, points of view um, to be able to see what's really happening in the world as opposed to whatever lens New York City sees the world th- through or whatever lens any geography sees the world through? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm also curious what impact this has had on the work culture at Beardwood and mm. <clears throat> working with your colleagues. Um, I guess maybe some are back in the office, some are working from home, some are still in the city, some have moved away. Can you talk a bit about that and how you guys still work, you know, your team dynamics? Yeah, that's a great question. I have been talking about this for a while and how excited I am to define the new future. Um, I don't know that I've heard it written down yet for what it looks like and what it should be. And what I keep telling the team is let's go define it together point. But you did ask specifically, how are we working together now? What I'm super proud of and excited of is we are rocking it. Um, (laughs) These people are rocking it all around the country and sometimes around the world. um, And they are enjoying the flexibility of being able to do that. There are a few things that have really empowered us to do that. And they were things that we were doing and starting to do before COVID and the, the acceleration of this. Um, and a lot of that had to do with virtual whiteboards um, mm. and, and being able to collaborate that way. And now the design team says, look, even, even in an office, I do not want to have a crit at a wall anymore. I want to do it here because I think of all the trees that we kill when we print out paper and put it on a wall and, you know, that experience. And so I think finding the tools that allow, allow that collaboration and facilitation, whatever it is for your team and the way you work makes a, a huge difference. Um, we were we we were in the fortunate position to have our lease be up at the end of October in 2020. 
And so we chose not to sign a new lease at the end of 2020 because we, we knew that we would want an office space, but we knew that we didn't know what kind of office space we wanted. And it wasn't going to be the same office space we had before. If that makes mm-hmm. any sense, yeah. And yeah. so, what we've done now is we've taken a temporary space inside of someone's much larger, <laughs> disused, beautiful loft in Dumbo in downtown Brooklyn, uh, not in downtown Brooklyn, in Dumbo, Brooklyn, um, and <laughs> and it's great. Um, and people have the opportunity to go there, and we do go there, and we've had some events there, and it's been super. Um, and we continue to plan to use this year as a test and learn. Um, and people have the opportunity to use the space. We're going to have quarterly get togethers where if people, and we have hired people who are now completely distributed and in other states, our head of strategy is in Colorado and she is Mm. fantastic. And we wouldn't Mm -hmm. have probably hired her before. COVID, but this has allowed us to find a talent who is who says to me, look, I need to live in the mountains and I need to live near Colorado. So this is where I got to be. And I'm not going to argue and we're better for it. So I think it, it's been, again, an acceleration of some things that we were already starting to do. We were already working remotely. We were already working at a digital whiteboard. Um, and I think the team has really run with it and owned it. And I'm not saying there weren't bumpy roads. And I think in the first, I know in the first year, um, we all worked too hard according to those studies, right? Because we were all at home freaking out, not knowing what to do. And all we did was work and everyone was pinging each other all, all hours of the night. And we did a health and wellness survey because the mood was not good. Um, and we found that the mood was not good and we needed to make some serious changes. And so one thing we did was we put in office hours of 930 to 630. Now we had office hours. We were in the office when you were expected to be in the office. But this was about when you were expected to respond to people. Because, you know, if you're all alone at home, pinging people at midnight, it's not good for anyone. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what it's really done is eliminated communication outside of office hours. It doesn't mean that people don't occasionally work later and they aren't chatting with their team about the thing that they're solving for the presentation tomorrow morning. But the, the behavior now is that communication and all meetings happen within this framework. So it is a very mm-hmm. condensed, compressed time frame. but everyone really appreciates the fact that they feel like they're not expected to respond at all hours and they can turn off, quote unquote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. I love the the flexibility that you're allowing for and, and for people to have lives um, outside of uh, the office. Um, one last thing I wanted to to wrap up on. Um, tell me about poetry, because uh, you know, in our in our back and forth, you you brought it up. Um, it sounds like you have gotten back into it. Um, how does that uh, weave it, itself back into your life now? Great question. Um, so poetry, the reason Michelle brings this up is because I I have a bachelor's degree in creative writing, in poetry, and I also have a bachelor's degree in advertising. And I always say that the most valuable of the two degrees is poetry, absolutely. Um, and, and we'll get to that in just a second why I think it's the most valuable. But I, poetry has has come back into my life in, in an actual poetry form in that um, I've been looking for narratives. Again, when I think about the feed, how do I find narratives? Um, and so my brilliant husband proposed a, a poem a month. 
and so we have a poem a month up on the uh, up on the refrigerator. Um, and so in January we started with the Snowman by Wallace Stevens, and it was brilliant because January can be bleak in the Catskills. Um, and you read this poem aloud, and there is a narrative, and there's a story, and there is also again all you're focusing, you're looking at something intently, and you're looking at it with intention and also and also with repetition which creates a new a new view of anything right if you look at a human with in with with intensity and with intention and with repetition you will see different things different times and the same thing is true of a poem and you can see different narrative structures and different ideas um so that's been great because while I had a degree in, I got a degree in creative writing and poetry, it, it, you would not see books of poems lying around my house, generally speaking, and it's not something I pick up and do. What I, what I learned from poetry and what I learned from my poetry degree was the ability to distill complicated thoughts, ideas, emotions, feelings, sensations into the fewest words possible to mm -hmm, be able mm -hmm. to communicate the to communicate an idea in a half in a single line um, was something a poetry teacher once taught me and it's always stuck with me um, which is every line needs to a good poem every line says an idea and a half um, and I think about that with strategy I think about that with the work that we do I think with that you know if I'm writing a positioning statement it's like, how can I communicate a, a thought and a half? How can I refine so much that I'm communicating more, more than I, than I should or could within the limited, you know, the limited spare words that, that you need to use to do that sort of work. I, I love that because, um, you know, one last thing that I'll, I'll touch on that, um, you know, we shared back and forth um, when we were talking about this episode, you, you talked about missing the micro stories that are, um, you know, vibrant in, in New York. And I really remember that a lot as well, living there. It's such a crazy, quirky, fun like I think of it as like a big city of the friendliest people I've ever met or not yes, met. Like just right. overheard in New York is really a true thing. Uh -huh. um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, it sounds like you maybe missed the micro stories, but you found another way to, to create your own or to reflect on some of these other poetic micro stories. Right. How can you find those narratives wherever you are? And and to your point, I, I go to a place near our house that is a, a reservoir with a, a big vista um, and it attracts international tourists. And yes, we're there for the walk and the reservoir and the vista, but equally I'm there to listen to the tourists um, because <laughs> I snatched those micro stories again. And, you know, what I loved about New York city was they were usually in, you know, any language, but English. Um, and this is true at this spot. And, and it's even more fun to try to interpret or, or, you know, figure out the stories when, when the, the native language is not yours. Um, what mm -hmm. can you read from the body language? What can you tell from what they're wearing? What can you tell from the interactions of the people? How can you, how can you follow the story and or create the narrative, which is equally what strategy is. It's uncovering the narrative as well as creating the narrative. Right. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. I'm, I'm so glad that we had the uh, excuse uh, that I had the excuse to reach out and we had this opportunity to reconnect. Um, so glad to hear that you're doing well in the Catskills and still finding stimulation, uh, you know, even away from from New York City, but it sounds like you're really thriving there. 
Michelle, I have loved this. I have loved reconnecting with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And yes, please come to the come to the Catskills. Come visit. And <laughs> equally, friends, uh, find your own inner Catskills. Um, you don't have to live in the forest. You can find all of these things um, in yourself and in a city. Right. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.